0: interesting week in the sports world to say the very least and i don't know whether or not it's just me but with lebron james winning his title it almost seems kind of almost overshadowed by football and everything going on it could again it could very well just be me not paying attention to the bubble but i feel like nfl news has just been more prevalent it's not
1: it's not normal for the nba finals to take place at this point steve of course you look at you know it's normally in june yeah, We're not talking about like the Lakers winning the finals, like at this point in time. So it is out of the ordinary, but regardless of the fact you do have to, you know, look at it and just remember it and be like, wow, like this is LeBron's fourth ring. Like now maybe the go talk gets serious.
0: And it, it, it's funny. Cause I think, uh, I'm pretty sure it was, was, uh the athletic or, or ESPN put up an article about how, how now we have to kind of revisit the talk. And, and you, me and Jack talked about this way back during quarantine, like April ish after the last dance and how, how? Who really is the goat? And I saw you get into a little beef on uh, on Twitter about it, and it was really interesting because
1: <laughs> look like the, I don't I, normally get into beef on Twitter. I'm usually very inactive, but, but I've been I've been prompted to get going on it. But now what's going on? But now like the debate has to
0: happen. We have to talk
1: about it. because yeah. I think now the question
0: falls into play is: Do the four rings match up to the six rings, and do the career stats match up to the career stats? And and, and look, I, I mean, I personally don't think. Now, the NBA, don't, don't get me wrong, rings matter. But I don't think that in terms of the singularity of a player, I think the, I think the, the team matters. Of course. But the yeah. singularity of the player, rings don't necessarily matter unless it's you single-handedly bringing, it, bringing, it, bringing them to the ring. And let's be honest, no sport is a singular player, league, team, whatever happens it happens to be. But I think now the question of GOAT really does take effect. But... Before we get into anything, I'm Stephen McAvoy, joined by Eric Kerr. Jack Mayne is out for the night. He is producing Sports Pause. Be sure to tune into that. What, 9.30 is it tonight? It's
1: 9.30 tonight. He'd actually be hosting tonight. Oh, yeah. Hosting. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. He produces broadcast breakdown. I understand oh, the confusion. Is. Alongside with me. I'm the social producer. He's the executive producer. So, But, hey, you know what? Big time for Jack Main. It is me
0: alone with Eric Kerr tonight. We're also going to be joined by Max Schreiber in the second half hour. We're only doing an hour show today, regardless of the two. But... Before we get get into anything, it is time for the Mack and Main Show. You're listening to the Mack and Main Show. Off the face of the Capitals Atlantic. The capital of the country is the capital
2: of the hockey playoffs. On 98.1 WQAQ.
0: Driving forward, diving to the goal line. It's the touchdown. And a title for the Patriots. I can't believe it. The soundtrack of Quinnipiac. Is this the tagger? And of course, it, this is the Mac and Main Show. Stephen McAvoy joined by Eric Kerr, not Jack Main. Once again, he is hosting Sports Pause tonight at 930. Be sure to go check it out. But... Eric Kerr of And One on WQAQ, your show airs at 7 now or 6? Yeah, 7 on
1: Mondays, right before you guys. Oh, yeah. We we always make sure to plug you before you guys go on. Of course. And this is actually a fun fact. This is the second time I've had to fill in for one of you guys. The (laughs) first time, I think it was a couple weeks ago, I filled in for you. Because you were at home with your family or whatever the reason was. So we talked about basketball. Mm -hmm. And now I'm filling in for Jack. And we're, we're also talking about basketball again. So, I guess Dashafu, you guys really love to have me on. I'm I'm happy to be here, but well, yeah,
0: it, it is terrific to have you on. So, when Eric came on a few weeks ago, it, in my stead, we ended up talking uh you and Jack talked about the NBA uh finals and what was to come between the Heat and the Lakers. That's now come and gone, and now we we are dealing with a champion. The GOAT, the greatest of all time potentially, and I know Jack No, Jack. Eric, you and I have had a lot of discussion on, on this in the past, he but can. We have to reconsider now who really is the goat. But first, I want to talk about what exactly worked and what didn't for both the Lakers and the Heat. Let's start with the Lakers. So LeBron James, Anthony Davis, whether it be Alex Caruso or, or Danny Green, whoever your 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 preferred player is, you name it, it just happened to work. I I don't know if it was the fact that Kobe's death sparked this revolution. I, I know there's there's this this narrative in, in sports that. When tragedy strikes, great things happen to those cities. We saw it with Isaiah Thomas when he was a Celtic, uh, when his, I believe it was his sister, died. And you just see it all over in all, the, in, in all these different situations. But what really did work for the Lakers?
1: I think it's just the the fact that, and I actually talked to Jack about this, I think LeBron just played with a, as a man on a mission throughout the whole playoff series, you know, still being disregarded by fans, uh, losing the MVP to Giannis, which granted Giannis obviously had the better regular season, of course. but... When the award was announced, LeBron was still like pissed. Like he thought he had it. Mm -hmm. So he was like, oh, I'm making pay. So he just went out there. And Anthony Davis, too. Those two together are just a dominant, dominant tandem in the league. And, you know, you see how they, you know, pretty much dominated the Western Conference being the first seed and then continued to dominate in the playoffs. So just a complete out domination with those two guys. And the roster from top to bottom was pretty good. You know, you have Alex Caruso as a good scorer from off the bench. You have. Danny Green is a knockdown shooter. You have a load of big men off that bench or on the roster with JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard just grabbing rebounds. Again, those big blocks and other big points for you down low. It's just a great, great just combination of rosters and just like veterans on this team alongside young guys, too, like Kuzma and Caruso. That It just all worked out together. And, you know, obviously LeBron is going to make your guys play way better when he's on the roster because he knows how to play with the team and i think that's just the end of the story i mean lebron james playing like a man on a mission going out and putting these numbers especially in the nba finals which i'll get into those numbers later but i do want to give you your piece steve i think it's just the overall reason why the lakers were coming out on top
0: well the lakers had in my opinion it wasn't necessarily the greatest team on paper i think there was there were certainly uh like ebbs and flows in the team they had demarcus cousins to begin the year he ended up falling out so it, what I thought was going to be the biggest problem is going to end up being the tandem down low, especially especially against a Heat team that has a Bam Adebayo who's been absolutely lights out the entire year. He was uh, he was in the running for comeback player of the year, I believe it was. So between Javel McGee and Dwight Howard, they managed just to, granted, with Bam Adebayo out for the first two games of the season uh, for, uh, of the series, they still managed to keep him at bay, even tamed, even tamed with an injury. But I think the biggest story really does come out come out of the. Loss of Bam and the loss of Goran Dragic for the Heat, yeah, and really, realistically, if it wasn't f- for them being out, the Heat could have very well possibly taken the series had they kept LeBron at bay. AD also just went absolutely awol. But t- speaking speaking o- on the Heat, Goran Dragic being out, the the Heat were more were more likely to give up a point in the paint with Goran, Goran Dragic out. It was like seven times more likely. Was he the key? Was he the key to the Heat downfall, or was it? more uh, more spread out
1: i think it was more just like bam not being there allowing you know allowing all those points in the paint uh you know because you look at who's after bam it's Kelly O'Linick and myers leonard guys that are not known for playing defense in the paint and are more known to be out in the perimeter being the stretch five for the team they're not a big defensive presence down there and john and i just talked about this in a1-2 i think the heat are just another like backup center away it doesn't have to be a bam out of bio level, just someone that can come in there, you know, get some defensive stops, grab some rebounds, get a couple baskets in the paint, keep possessions alive for their team because Bam was forced to play a lot of minutes mm-hmm. in those Eastern Conference playoff series, especially against the Celtics. Like after games 1 and 2, you did not see Bam leave the floor that much and when he did, Andre Iguodala was playing center out there. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, you could do that against the Celtics cuz so they don't have a dominant big man, but the Lakers on the other hand, they have two dominant big men that are circling in at all times. So it just makes it that much tougher for a team like the Heat to, to deal with.
0: Not to mention Anthony Davis, who who in some minds should have won Defensive Player of the Year yeah. had it not been for Giannis's historic, nothing you've ever seen before kind of play.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, Anthony Davis is such a defensive presence too, so it makes it just that much tougher to bam, to get looks down there and low, and for the rest of the guys out there as well. So you really had to have Jimmy Butler scoring 40 points, 30 points a game to keep his team alive in the series, but... You know, one guy can only do so much. And like you said earlier in the show, like, it's not all about one guy. It's about the team. And you can't rely on just one guy po- and, you know, going out and having that kind of success. Mm-hmm.
0: And really what I noticed from the heat was that it really was that one man show outside of maybe maybe the clutch shooting of uh, Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson. It was really the the the, the Jay Bucket show. Yeah. Dude, J- finals, Jay Butler. Yeah. Jimmy Butler had had a finals performance that I don't think anybody is going to be able to match. That isn't named LeBron James, and it's something that that look all the love to Jimmy Butler for doing what he did. I think Heat fans coming into the year had had you had you, had you even said oh finals
1: appearance they would have been like whoa no way Never everyone was thinking like seven or eight seed with the Heat at exactly. best, but to make that kind of absurd run with all those guys that you know are undrafted, uh, rare commodities. Uh, You know, Jimmy Butler was a guy that almost didn't even play Marquette and didn't Mm -hmm. even make it to the college game. It's just absurd to see. But I think credit goes to Eric Spolster. He's such a such a good coach. And, you know, John said that he's probably the second best coach in the NBA outside of Greg Popovich. You know, I I can sort of agree with that after what he was able to do with this team. Mm -hmm. Nobody saw it coming. And. I think the, the
0: important thing now is to look towards the future because, of course, Eric Spolstra had did something historic. He's done things historic. He, I think, he is probably the second the, the second best coach in the league. But now, looking towards the future, what is there to come? There's two big things that, that that I want to talk about. The first one we already know LeBron and MJ where they now stand. But the, but I want to talk now first about about what it meant for the Heat to make it so far. So in terms of Jimmy Butler, I personally this is this could be a biased thing. I wasn't very high on Jimmy B- Butler when he went to Minnesota, when he went to Philadelphia, and then when he came to Miami. I thought he was a, a B plus shooter. He was a decent defender. He wasn't a, a focal point of a, a focal point of a roster. Clearly I was very much wrong because had I even saw what he did in Chicago with the Bulls and now how it transferred over to when you are the focal point, not second fiddle to a Carl Anthony Towns or second fiddle to a Joel and B um, to a Joel and B and Ben Simmons, yeah. it shows that he could do what he does. So, so, so for Jimmy Butler, with there's been rumors and rumblings, and I don't think it's gonna happen that the Heat might go out and try and try and trade for Giannis or try and trade for a big name or sign a big name in free agency. Is it really worth it for the Heat? I understand that 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 that, that, that there are some things they need to do, but I mean, w- w- with Butler being a top twenty player in the league, but not much better than a than fifteenth or so. Can you really afford to go that extra leap and find that max deal kind of guy?
1: Yeah, I think ESPN has been saying that uh, the Heat are one star away still from, you know, trying to get to that championship level to beat a team like the Lakers. Mm -hmm. But it's just so tough to get that superstar because, one, the Heat don't really have a lot of money because they've been underpaying almost everyone in the team with exceptions to Jimmy Butler and Kelly Olenek because he got a big deal from the back when he was a free agent. Mm -hmm. Um, But... They just, you know, I think they just got to let these guys develop. You know, give Tyler Hero another year. He's only a rookie. Same with Duncan Robinson. Give him another. He had a great year this year, but just give him another year of development. He'll become, you know, maybe even a better scorer down the line besides just being a a catch-and-shoot shooter for them. And, you know, you still have guys like Andre Godala. You know, we don't know if he's going to be back in the team next year, uh, but just veterans that can keep those guys in line. So I think, you know, they can still improve, but I don't think it's like at a superstar level. I just don't think they have the pieces or the money to really – go out or a piece of it will and be willing to give up to go get that superstar.
0: And of course, again, literally what what I just said, Jimmy Butler being that that mass contract player, but isn't much better than probably the fifteenth best player in the NBA, is it even worth it to get somebody who possibly is better than Jimmy Butler? And then would you have the same problem that that he had in Philly or in Minnesota? it's really yeah. you don't know. But now, of course, we need the real debate and this is where I see you fucking your laptop, shaking your hands, sweating a little bit cuz we're going to talk about it. Oh, no sweat over here. <laughs> so back in April, back in April when the last dance premiered, uh, you me and Jack got on the mic and we were talking about how well you two said Jordan is the is is the goat. Through and through, doesn't matter. I can give you every stat in the nation, it won't matter. I said, it, I said it was LeBron. You and Steve Pappas got into it uh, a little bit. It was more so just you getting into it more than him. He, he was a little uh, more concerned about the Rangers. But, yeah,
1: Steve just flashed a graphic of uh, better stats in front of me but, all but, but the hold day. Hold on, hold on, hold
0: on. <laughs> I, I want to bring up this graphic. So the graphic in, in question, uh, it pitted LeBron versus Jordan in terms of career, regular season stats, playoff stats, and miscellaneous numbers like finals, MVPs, uh, Player of the Year awards, so on and so forth. So... In terms of regular season numbers, LeBron James leads in everything except for steals, as well as three point percentage. Now we already know LeBron James isn't an elite three point shooter. Uh, he it was never really his game. He was more of a more of a back to the basket driving kind of player. And in terms of steals, again, defensively he was never really that that kind of a player. He was more towards the beginning of his career, but he did, but he simply didn't focus on it. In terms of the playoffs, it's all LeBron. Only thing is missing once again is shooting shooting from three. But the big question then falls on the miscellaneous numbers, the all-star appearances, the all-defensive numbers, the rings, the finals, the MVPs, the final MVPs, Defensive Player of the Year. They both won the Rookie of the Year. So really, now, where does this debate lie, honestly? Well, let's first start there.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the main focal point of any debate is the finals rings. Jordan has six. LeBron has four. And everyone's going to go off and say Jordan is the better player because he's, a winner, and Jack and I have had this uh, conversation a lot. And we, with sports, we we compare, you know, the greatest player of all time versus the best player of all time. Yeah. If you put LeBron James and Michael Jordan in a one v one basketball game, LeBron's gonna win. Of course. He's the better player. There's but, no doubt le- that in my, in my mind, he's more talented, more skilled, stronger body. He'll win in a one v one. But Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time because he's able to go out there. And go out and make those big clutch shots in big moments when he needs to. One of the big things, you know, obviously ESPN's going to capitalize on LeBron's win for the for the next few finals that he wins to be like, oh, like is the go conversation narrower? Or like, what's the deal with that? Mm-hmm. Uh and you know, one of the things that Rachel Nichols uh asked, you know, Tracy McGrady is, you know, who 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 for you got for you is gonna be taking that shot down the line? It's gonna be LeBron or MJ? And Ed, McGrady would go on and list like other players like Jordan and even others like Kobe Paul Pierce before they even get to LeBron why because those guys are going to be taking the clutch shot at the right time now LeBron instead of taking that shot he's going to be looking for the right play to make which isn't a bad thing but if you're looking at a guy that can go out and get you that win when no one else can really go out there and get you that buck in those last 15 seconds there's no way that LeBron, I mean, Michael Jordan, excuse me, is going to pass that ball up. He's going to look to take that final shot and get those those buckets that he needs to help his team win that game in the last 24 seconds or in the last 12 minutes. Uh, I, I found one example during that that uh, article as well by Zach Lowe that I read that actually was really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1993 Bulls championship, when the Suns went against the Bulls mm-hmm. uh, in that final game, game six, Jordan scored all nine points in that fourth quarter before Paxson hit the game winning three. Uh, so in that play was off of Michael Jordan, you know, making the right play and getting it to Paxson for that three pointer and taking the shot for himself. Yeah. So with that being in mind, goats go out there and they make the big plays to help their team win down the stretch. And that, yeah, that was one example, but you've seen it tons of times with Jordan's big shot, 96 over Russell, uh, Byron Russell to win that game. So, in those in those in that argument in this facet, Jordan is still the GOAT because he's more consistent when he's made it to the finals, he's won every finals. I look at that as quality over quantity. LeBron's obviously been to more appearances, made more finals appearances, but he hasn't won all of them. He's won four out of the ten he's made. So by percentages, quality over quantity, you look at that, Jordan is still the goat. I think your
0: your point on best player ever and greatest player ever is really, really interesting because if we're talk, talking the greatest player ever in terms of you need that shot in the last twenty four seconds, I honestly might have, I I would probably take Kobe over over MJ. That is true. Yeah, I, that's a personal thing. Now people put people people I, I've read lists on lists on lists, whether it be Zach Lowe, Stephen A. Smith, uh, just like KP, insert it, you name it. And most people don't even have Kobe in the top three. They'll have a Wilt or or a uh, Magic Johnson somewhere somewhere in the top three four range. And Kobe's kind of shifted off to like five or six, and I think it's interesting because LeBron James, of course, isn't a three-point shooter. And when you define what what shot you need in those 24 seconds, if you need a two, honestly, like depends depending on what you're going for the win, or the win or the tie. Give me LeBron if he could bully you down low. It's it's really different in all these different scenarios. We don't really we aren't defining any sort of guideline and look what you said about a one-on-one Jordan and LeBron in their prime LeBron body-wise is just by by and large better there's no way of denying it and I do think MJ has should have that that GOAT title in terms of overall skill capabilities the teams that the teams that, that, that that he led the players he faced but for LeBron James it's like where again it's where does the ball lie the greatest player of all time could he defend all five positions like lebron can not not mj but lebron could do it could he bully you down low and can he possibly shoot it outside if he can can he find the right plays like like lebron can mj could do it for, uh, from inside and outside it was only really a a 40% uh shooter from 3 which wasn't is not very far off from lebron's anyways so you could say shooting wise they're relatively equal players MJ was more, was more of, of, of a finesse guy down low rather than LeBron who was a bully ball player. But in my opinion, they're almost neck and neck in, in, in just about every category minus defensively where LeBron could guard Steph Curry or he could guard, let's say, Bill Russell in the paint. It, 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 it really comes down to what you find on every end. I do think LeBron is the GOAT solely on the premise that defensively and overall ability-wise, he can defend anybody. He could play anybody. And to your point on rings... My argument would be that even though Jordan went undefeated in the, play, in the postseason, Le- LeBron had had worse teams to play with. Like, Jordan had Paxson, he had Kerr, he had Kukoc, he had Rodman, he had Pippen. And now, granted, they, they weren't all together at the same time for only one of those rings, but LeBron had to—everyone's going to we, we, everyone's gonna de- like denounce this, but LeBron James went to the finals in 07 with Eric Snow and Zadrunas Ilgauskas and delante west yeah like i like like give me the chair next to me that, that could probably play better than delante west like <laughs> not for nothing like one player literally carried you to carried you to a final and graded you were swept in the finals but it doesn't matter you have you, you basically got in there on, on your own and yes w- is, does wade and Bosch compare to Rodman and Pippen? i don't think so not even the slightest And yet they still have to play the Ginoblis and the Dunkin's and the Parker's. And then they'll play the, uh, the Dirks and the Marion's and the kids and the Nashes and so on and so forth. I just think competition wise, you could potentially argue that, that LeBron is the goat. I don't really want to give an answer. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with what, what Jordan said in the last dance where he said, uh, and it's almost poppycock that we even talk about who is the goat because at, at the end of the day, you're comparing two different decades, two different players, two different regiments, two different systems, two different ways of thought in the n b a where where the three pointer now matters so much more than the two and mm-hmm. i it's just it, it's one of those things that that if Michael Jordan can say, "Look, I don't want to hear this nonsense about about who the goat is i could I could live with it. I can yeah, give it to him,
1: yeah, no, exactly, but I think in terms of competition, I think Jordan still had good good competition of course yes. Again. Like, you know, he played against, obviously, the 93 Finals, played against Charles Barkley. Uh, He also had to go run against John Stockton and Karl Malone, who was a great dynamic duo back in that time period as well. Um, You know, we could go on with Eastern Conference Finals, too, where they've had to play against, you know, guys like Patrick Ewing, who was a very dominant center in there as well. Mm -hmm. And I I think, you know, this fourth Finals could, you know, be talked about taking away that credibility. I mean, granted, you know, maybe the Bulls team was more complete than you know, this Lakers team was, but Anthony Davis is one of the best players in the NBA right now. So having that guy with you on your team is huge because it takes off a whole lot of load off of a guy like LeBron to, you know, not have to worry about Leo, maybe letting this defender blow by him because he knows he's got guys like Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard sitting in the paint to but, hold them out. But
0: past that though, who's the third piece to that, that team? You had the Jordan Pippen Rodman.
1: Who's the third to LeBron and AD third piece. Yeah. Well, who, I guess who, you could probably, uh, you could probably, uh, I guess, say Kuzma. Arguably Kuzma? Arguably Kuzma. Oh, boy,
0: <laughs> Flint, Michigan, who wouldn't say Kuzma, by the way, is from there. But, uh, <laughs> look, man, I don't know. Like, it's, uh, and look, the, the Lakers have thrived off of duos and not trios. We saw it with Shaq and Kobe. We saw it with uh, MJ and, uh, not Kareem. I'm drawing a blank. still Shaq, right? regardless of hope
1: yeah Shaq and Kobe
0: yeah yeah, regardless like like they relied on duos not not trios and it's again do do we give LeBron credit for winning a ring with only two guys rather than three that's up in the air but you were saying you were saying something else
1: yeah no no I basically was just talking about like kind of you know that having to have a guy like Anthony Davis on your team is so, so dominant uh and you know you know even if Dennis Rodman is your third guy like he played a very specific role like he was a rebounder. Like, yeah. there are guys on the Lakers team that served that role as well. Now, granted, not as good as Rodman because we know how, beat, how much a piece of Rodman was on the boards. Of course, But, I mean, he served a potentially role. Like, it was mainly like Jordan Pippen being the main duo for the Bulls as well. And you look at the stat line, you know, obviously with Steve's graphic, I think it was all just career stats. And obviously LeBron's going to be bigger because yeah. he came into the league when he was— you know, in his prime at young at 18 years old. And he's still at already has more season than played than LeBron has of 16 compared to Jordan's 15 when he came into 22 and, you know, kind of played out his his prime mainly sat out for a year because of wanted to go play baseball to follow his dad's dreams. So that took away a season in there as well. And, you know, that's why I'm going back to the quality over quantity argument. You look at the averages now for the points. So Jordan has averaged 30 points for his career. LeBron's 27. Now granted LeBron has three more rebounds and assists, but Goes back to the argument of Jordan looking to make those clutch baskets and get, you know, the big scoring, big numbers for his team. Again, steals as well. Jordan has more had more average steals than LeBron has had. Mm-hmm. Turnovers, Jordan has had less average turnovers than LeBron has had. Uh, and, you know, kind of goes down the line a few other statistics. There's free throw center as well. But, you know, obviously we can go circle so we can discuss this all day, literally for hours if we wanted to, yeah. but we simply just don't have the time for it. Uh, but I think overall... Unless if LeBron catches, catches Jordan, I think Jordan is still going to be, got to be the GOAT of basketball.
0: So under the assumptions, so just kind of looking forward, AD is, uh, he's now a free agent because he was traded from New Orleans to the Lakers and did not did not sign an extension, assuming Anthony Davis does end up signing a extension with the team and LeBron and AD become this powerhouse in the Western Conference. Now, this is a bit of speculation towards the future, but could we possibly say that if LeBron and AD could win, win another ring or possibly two
1: could they be the greatest duo of all time in the in the NBA ever? Yeah, I think you definitely have to put them up there. I mean, also with duos like Kobe and Shaq as well were also dominant uh as well as a duo over there. Uh it definitely would be tricky to, you know, not go against them because there have been bunch of duos throughout the NBA, but I think, you know, in terms of a duo winning a 3P or you'd probably would definitely have to say them, right? Because yeah. no, no other duo in the NBA has done that. So that would be – I definitely would consider it for sure. Definitely one of the best duos of all time. I mean, you see how dominant they are. LeBron is still LeBron at 36 years old, and Anthony is Davis is in his prime. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's tough to deal with, and I think I definitely would have to say. But, you know, also to – you know, if you could argue maybe that uh, with the success that the Warriors have had with KD and of Curry, and granted so they also had Clay and Draymond as well – but you can make the argument that maybe uh, Steph and KD are a better duo as well in terms of their talent. Uh, but you know, it is interesting to to look at and see who the best duo's the NBA of all time are. And you know, I definitely would have to put LeBron and and AD if they continue to win a couple more. I think they are still title favorites, and considering how dominant they are, if they keep that roster, maybe improve it, mm-hmm. I don't see why not.
0: So there's been a debate that because of the bubble and the time off uh, within the NBA, there's a possibility that we have that, that that the Lakers almost got got it easy because they had all, all this time off. But looking forward to the future now, at just as, as we wrap up here, do the Lakers need to do do anything uh, in lieu of next season in order to get ready?
1: Uh, what do they know, need? I, th- I think they just need rest. <laughs> and I think that's the case with all the teams, too. You know, even seeing the announcers or hearing the announcers of the games talking about how they've had, you know, one, maybe at the most, two days of rest between games. Lakers would highly have extended ones because they would always, usually always end their series early enough. Uh, but with that being said, I think they just need rest. Maybe they can get a couple more good pieces or two out of the offseason because we know the GM's going to be in the business trying to get some new guys to try to bolster up that roster and just mm-hmm. make them another contender. And I you know, I think for the rake's sake of them and the rest of the league, they just need their rest, need to regroup, celebrate now, but... You know, as soon as they can, COVID permitting, get back in the gym and start getting ready with what they got.
0: Well, folks, there it is from Eric Kerr. The big question that I want uh, every, all of our listeners to think about is: who really is the goat? In your opinion, is it LeBron? Is it MJ? Let us know on our Twitter at Mac and Maine. Please let us know. We are going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be joined by Max Schreiber and Eric Kerr once again. In the second half hour, we're going to discuss some baseball. And what is the deal with the New York Yankees from World Series contenders to ALDS follies? You're listening to the Mac and Main Show on 98.1 WQAQ. back, folks, to the Mac and Main Show on 98.1 WQAQ, the soundtrack of Quinnipiac. Stephen McAvoy joined by Eric Kerr live in studio, and we have on Max Schreiber, resident Yankee fan and host of Sports to the Max. Max, can you hear me?
2: I can hear you guys perfectly.
0: Awesome, Max. So I want to talk mostly right now with the Yankees before we get into the overall playoff talk itself. But in terms of the Yankees, uh, I, I, said, I said this before going to commercial break, We are in a a crisis in the Bronx, not we, but the, but the Yankees themselves, we had the Yankees who came into the year as what should have been a world series favorite. I'm pretty sure no one, uh, no one thought that they weren't going to make the world series against the Dodgers. And yet the, the rays kind of stung them. They literally got them out, uh, ALDS follies. You and I watched the games, uh, throughout, but First of all, just what's your take on the Yankees this year? What what went wrong? What could have been uh, changed? What really was the, uh, the nail in the coffin for the Yankees?
2: Well, first off, guys, thank you very much for having me on. It's an absolute honor, and just hope everyone's doing well tonight. But uh, when it comes to the Yankees, I think – we have to look at the fact that I'm not using this as an excuse because on my show earlier today, I talked about it as if it was a regular playoff loss, but it's hard to talk about the regular season and all the ups and downs that they had during the regular season, whether you point to when they won 10 in a row or to the point where they were 5-15 and at one point in the middle of the season because there were a lot of injuries for the second, really the second and a half year in a row because that second half of 2018, Judge was out with a broken wrist, They were throwing Shane Robinson out there in right field, and Stanton was holding down the lineup, but he had a DH for a couple of weeks because he had a hamstring issue. So this injury bug, obviously we know in 2019 the Yankees had 31 people on the IL, which set a major league record, and this year it seems like the same exact thing was happening again. So it's kind of hard to see because if this was a full six-month season, 162-game schedule season, we don't know what would happen? We don't know if they would have ended up catching the Rays, but give credit when credit is due. It was a crazy year. It's 2020. We all know that. And the Rays were by far the better team. And not to mention when the Yankees and Rays went up against each other in the regular season, the record was 2-8, and eight, the Rays winning eight of those 10 matchups. But in the playoffs, the Yankees were pretty much a full, healthy squad, with the, with the exception of James Paxton, Tommy Canely, and who else am I missing? I'm I'm, I'm trying to think who else wasn't there. But for the most part, those were really the, the, the two biggest injuries for the Yankees, and they just didn't hit in timely spots. Now, there was a lack of pitching, obviously, when Severino and Paxton are out, and you have to rely on Tanaka and Cole, but besides that, they only have a circle trust of relievers outside of when it's really only Green, Britton, and Chapman there's a lack of pitching there, but the reason this team didn't win was because they couldn't hit in primary moments. So
0: I'm I'm hearing three main storylines here, and I, and we'll kind of hit on all of them. Eric, please please feel free to join in uh, as well with your take. So first of, of all, the, the the pitching side. So historically, the Yankees have had good pitching, but but in the last five years, it almost seems as, as if the the Yankees pitching staff, especially their their starters, it hasn't necessarily been uh, the relief corps, but the starters have been almost lackluster uh, Tanaka in the playoffs, although has been terrific throughout the regular, throughout the regular season has had his ebbs and flows, the injury bug to James Paxton. And you you can even look years ago to, to Michael Pinedo, which who should have been a, a solid number three guy never actually panned out on the roster. So could, could we blame the injury to James Paxton as a, as a a problem for the Yankees or, or is it mostly just the injury or the pitcher itself that has been, the plague for the Yankees.
2: Well, the thing before the Yankees went out and signed Cole this offseason, Cole was supposed to be the silver lining to all the pitching lows. Because the past years, Cashman at the deadline, they have just not been able to get that bona fide one or two starter, depending on what the Yankees were looking for. Obviously they brought in Tanaka in the off season of 2013 going into the 14th season. And although he wasn't the superstar that we saw in the first half of the season in 2014, where, and, and he was named an all-star that year. He has been very up and down. Think of 2019. He was an all-star. Don't forget Tanaka actually got the win in the 2019 all-star game for the American league, which is kind of funny. But then the second half of the season, he imploded and he finished the season with an ERA over four. So really behind, so he's very up and down, but in the postseason, he has been phenomenal. And besides that, it's really been kind of, who is that guy? Severino was that guy in 18, but injuries have caught up to him the past two years, and he was ineffective in the second half of 2018. Sonny Gray, we know how that panned out. In we know how that panned out. I mean, in 2014, essentially, you can look back to all the way going back to that rotation. Hiroki Kuroda was the second starter, the third starter. there. Oh, so it just seems like Cashman has struck out a bunch of times trying to find a, uh, excuse me, a another starter. And after the Sonny Gray thing didn't work out, Yankees went out and got James Paxton. They traded Justin Shuffield, who was the Yankees' number one prospect at the time, or one of their top prospects at the time. And James Paxton, although he never pitched more than 160 innings going into that year, when his first season with the Yankees last year. He had some injury woes and. He ended up having a really good season towards in, in, in last September, but this year couldn't get on the couldn't get on the field. So the injury bug is really what's always been Paxton's issue. And the Yankees, thank goodness, they had Cole because if they were relying on Severino being their ace, which is what we thought maybe two years ago was going to be the situation, the Yankees would have been absolutely screwed. Who even knows that they would have made the playoffs without Cole? And Cole struggled a lot in the beginning of the season, but ended up having a, a solid season overall in the, in the short sixty games. So it's really just the fact that the Yankees have not been able to go out and get that bona fide one or two with the exception of going and getting Cole. But with all the injuries to the pitching staff this year, Cole wasn't enough. Now with the bullpen, the bullpen has always been the strong point of the Yankees for the past couple of years, really going back to 2015 when they had Andrew Miller and Dylan Betances. Then they brought in Chapman. They've had Kainley, uh, David Robertson for a while. This, but uh, Dylan Betances was. Don't forget, Don Betances was a was an All Star in four straight seasons, if I'm not mistaken. Which and and I mean, he was one of my favorite Yankees of all time. In all honesty, a New York kid came up and was you know an All Star caliber player with the Yanks. But the bullpen has really been the strong suit. But This year the bullpen just did not pan out the way it is. I mean, you brought in Otavino on that large three-year contract last offseason, and he was ineffective this year with an ERA over five. Chapman was solid. Obviously, he gave up the big home run, but
1: nonetheless
2: was was solid. And with and you know, Caneley unfortunately has been great since they brought him over in twenty seventeen from the White Sox, but unfortunately Tommy John caught up to him and Green has been great. So they really only had three relievers, and they just didn't have enough starting pitching, with the exception of Cole. And when Tanaka's ineffective, they, and they're not going seven innings, and then you, you know it's it's difficult to find those other guys, the Olaizica, the Luis Sessa, in those middle innings to man down and and get to those three guys in the bullpen who have Boone's trust.
1: Yeah, you know, Max, this is a this is a crazy thought of mine, but uh, I am thinking about the Yankees roster, and in terms of pitching and hitting. They're very right-handed dominant, which, as we know, a lot of people are right-handed. And being right-handed is very, very predictable to to deal with in baseball. And I saw something on on online recently saying, you know, maybe the Yankees need to get more left-handed, maybe to kind of throw off uh, other teams in a sense. So is there any, like, left-handed guys in terms of, like, hitting or pitching the guys that the Yankees, you think, would need to kind of, like, get over the top?
2: No one in particular. I think at this point, now that's a good point that you bring up there. And obviously that's very, you know, all old time baseball, righty versus lefty type matchup. You know, I think in terms of the analytical approach to the game, I don't know how far that the righty lefty matchups rely on analytics. Maybe it's huge in the analytics department. I that's just something that I don't have enough information about. But I definitely think you need to find that common balance between analytics and between the way the game used to be played. If that calls in bringing a bunch of left-handed bats, that would make sense, especially with Yankee stadium and that short porch, the left-handed bat, you know, back in when I remember the Yankees, they were very left-handed at the plate. You had a lot of guys that Cano. uh I mean, Jeter was obviously a righty and a rod, but you look at guys like Cano. you had a, De'Ambi, even if I'm not mistaken, was a left-handed bat. So back in that, around that 09 series, and even before that, like in the 08 season, which they didn't make the playoffs, so anything I kind of say there is irrelevant because obviously the lineup that year didn't get the job done. But I remember them always having, growing up, always having more left-handed bats in the lineup than right-handed bats. But all those years growing up, I mean, between 2001 to 2009, they never got the job done and then they haven't gotten the job done since. So I I just don't think that that's the number one issue here.
0: Well, so speaking of analytics, and I think this is going to segue really well into a point, when you and I were were watching the games, it almost seemed like, well, first of all, just Aaron Boone in general, it's, he's been so reliant on the analytics game. And I feel like it's, it's almost been the crux of this team to a degree. We saw it in the last two games of the series when by the sixth inning, uh, once the starter was bounced, we're looking at it at it like, all right, is Britain going to go two winnings and Chapman goes two winnings, and then they're going to have to do it all again tomorrow night. Like it, it's the analytically bringing in uh, Mike Taupman or Mike Ford for uh, for Glaber Torres or whatever it may be analytically that that maybe this guy bats better against someone or or the, the pitching matchup works. I feel like the analytics has almost been across for the Yankees.
2: Well first thing is referring to analytics and referring to the decision in game two to only leave Debbie Garcia out there for an inning. A lot of people want to kill Boone and a lot of people want to kill Boone for the way that he manages this this, this team analytically. But from what I have read, from what I have listened to all the Yankee and baseball insiders, because obviously, and I actually said this on my show today, I don't have that type of you know, personal relationship with anyone in the in the Yankees organization mm-hmm. yet. Yeah, hopefully, which I hope you guys are all <laughs> hoping the same. But from everyone that is that is a respected voice in, in covering baseball or covering the Yankees or and or both, has said that that was not an Aaron Boone decision. That's an organizational decision, and that starts at Brian Cashman and it goes through the whole analytics department and upper management. So that decision to bring it—that's what they told. Aaron Boone, before game two, is they said, hey, look, analytically, this is what we want to do. So you, what you're going to do is you're going to bring in Debbie Garcia for an inning, and then you're going to go to a half for as long as possible, and we're going to just kind of have a bullpen day. And what the problem was with that game was that the Yankees were trying to get, everyone has used the same term, too cute. And... They tried to beat the Rays at their own game because don't forget the Rays are really the the founders of the opener. And, and they are gliding through with this analytical approach because they have a payroll that's a third of the Yankees payroll. So they need analytics to win. Of course, you know, the Oakland A's are the same way, as as you know. So, you know, the Yankees, it is important in today's baseball to rely on analytics the upper management, any it doesn't fall on Boone, any of the analytical, to, to, uh, in my opinion, the decisions. He is kind of presented the way, obviously, he uh, Aaron Boone is a believer in analytics, but a lot of it does come from upper management, from what I understand. So it's unfair to give Boone, you know, to call out Boone on a decision like that. What I do understand now, I do not believe the Yankees should get rid of Boone. I think that Boone is a great manager. Obviously, last year, I think he was snubbed. Of AL Manager of the Year, when the Yankees had 31 people go on the IL, and they still ended up with 103 wins and only two games away from the World Series. But I kind of understand where people are saying this team doesn't have heart. I I think that they that they do, but I understand that they couldn't get over the hump in the postseason, and I can see where maybe this kind of group of young players ish. Although now the quote unquote baby bombers are getting a little bit older, but you might want to say. They need to be pushed to a certain extent, and and there's just you know Aaron Boone is very protective of his players, and Aaron Boone is very he, he will defend them at all costs. And maybe you know they say that you know need an old time manager, but that's just not the way baseball is played now. You have to rely on analytics, but also when the Yankees have the money and have the largest payroll in baseball, they you you know there's some there's some wiggle room there because the Rays don't have the talent on paper that the Yankees do so you kind of have to find that happy medium between an analytical approach and a strict talent approach
1: of course so you know obviously you think you don't think Boone or firing Boone is the answer but there are a couple of players that I know of that are could be on the chopping blocks in terms of you know being a free agent this year maybe could get traded to try to you have some cap space, you know, with the immense money that market the Yankees do have. So what is, what are kind of the next offseason moves for the Yankees to really uh, get to, get to a better spot and hopefully make it to the uh, world series down the line?
2: Well, that's a good question because every year, and it seems like this has been every single off season where after the Yankees get knocked out, you say, what's the next step? And the first thing is, you always think about the Yankees being the evil empire and going out and getting that superstar and just being the old fashioned Yankees. And that's what they did last year with Cole. That's essentially what they did a couple off seasons ago with. Stanton. two, two years ago, it was always the Manny Machado talk. It just seemed like Manny Machado was primed to be a Yankee. They brought him in for a visit and the Yankees just ended up saying, no, thank you, which is, in all honesty, I think if they would have signed Manny Machado, I don't know if they would have went out the following offseason and signed Derek Cole. But now they're over the luxury threshold, and according to reports, I know I read an article from Joel Sherman in the New York Post, which I actually was telling Jack about earlier today that they have heard that House Steinbrenner really wants to get the luxury tax threshold back under. So what does that mean that they're going to do? I, I you know part of me think that there's not going to be a lot of changes to this team, or they're going to try to bring in, you know, younger players who are under still under control for a couple of years. You know, I mentioned Jack was talking to me today about maybe moving Chapman for salary relief. If they move in Chapman, they would have to bring in someone like, for example, when the Mets brought in Edwin Diaz. Now I know they brought in Cano, which is a whole other paycheck and a half. But <laughs> what I mean is it, let's say they just solely brought in, Edwin Diaz, who's essentially making a major league minimum, and he's not even arbitration eligible until, I believe, 2023 or 2024. He was under control for a long time. So it's going to be kind of, it's kind of going to be moves like that. I don't see them, you know, especially if they want to move on from Gary Sanchez, they're not going to go out and break the bank for JT Real Muto. Maybe they will sign a free agent pitcher, especially it seems like Paxton is gone. But also Tanaka is a free agent, and I do believe that both sides want to come to an agreement, and the Yankees want Tanaka back. I think Tanaka definitely wants to be back. Also, DJ LeMayu is a free agent, and he's going to probably want to cash in on somewhere around four years, $100 million. So I think that we're just going to see a lot of the same, maybe a couple tweaks here and there, maybe an arm in the bullpen, another arm in the starting rotation. I don't know if it's going to be as splashy as Trevor Bauer, but they're definitely going to go out and make a trade. There's been rumblings that Boy is, is someone that's kind of on the trading block if the Yankees want to bring somebody in, but I think you're going to see majority of the same roster. Also, one other thing is that the Yankees are really hoping that Canely is back, Domingo Herman is back, and Severino is back, and those would be, quote-unquote, their trade deadline or free agency acquisitions because they didn't have them for majority of the season. So to bring them back, that's essentially three really big arms that were absolutely 110% missing in the, in, in the playoffs this year.
0: So I want to trans- transition now into what's going to happen in the overall uh, postseason now going forward. We have the Rays up one game to nothing over the Astros. And then in the National League, the Dodgers taking on the Braves. I believe game one is, is actually that- is tonight. But...
1: Yep, I have. I, I I had it on for a little bit. So, so the Rays are actually up two zero now. They just beat the, the oh damn Astros. So well, hey, look at that.
0: So, so so you know what? Let's let's start there. So the Rays and the Astros. We 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 know the what what the Rays are capable of after watching them take down the Yankees. But I, I want to focus in on the Astros because they seem like a, a the, well, they are a very weird situation because. Obviously, we know what happened with their cheating scandal. COVID happened. It almost blew over, and no one really cared after spring training, anyways. And now they're back in the ALCS. And although they're on the doorstep of elimination in two games, there's it, it's. I think it's the principle that you lose Justin Verlander, you lose Garrett Cole, and yet you're still here. You're still you're still one of the best teams in baseball. And even with the drop off in uh, in batting average from Altuve, Correa, Springer, uh, Reddick, and so on. After uh, from uh, from during the cheating to now, hopefully, after the, afterwards and what and what they're currently producing, they're still hopefully. here. <laughs> yeah, ho- hopefully, like, I'm really hoping to God. But but what's happening now is is do should the Astros still be feared in the MLB, regardless of being down two games to nothing to the Rays? They very well could come back. It could also just be a matter of not having Verlander and and a second arm like Cole, where, you, where now you have to rely on a on a Lance McCullers, who hasn't necessarily been the most, the most effective player this season. So should we still fear the Astros, or, have, or are the Rays kind of saying, eh, they're done?
2: Well, the consensus going into the ALDS was whoever wins the Yankees-Rays Series was, for, I mean, you never want to say never, but it was just kind of a battle between the, America, the the two best teams in the American League. Although I did think the A's were a juggernaut in to a certain extent. And, it, obviously, the Astros do have a chance, but it seems like whoever won that series, everyone was predicting, is going to go to the World Series. But mm-hmm. the Astros, even without the cheating, they have a lineup, one of the best in baseball, if not the best in baseball. Like I said, Altuve had a really bad season for majority of the year. But, like I said, it, it, it's only it was only a 60-game season. So, who knows if you would have played another 120 games whether or not that he would be able hitting near 300, who you know, because Altuve is a great player, no matter the cheating, but the pitching is not what it was a couple of years ago. Verlander's out; they don't have Cole anymore. Uh, you, you know, they they're very lucky that they brought in Granke in the trade deadline of 2019 because if they didn't bring him in, who would be there? Who would be their number one right now? And their bullpen was never great to begin with, but it was good enough to get them where they are let's just throw the cheating out the window. The Rays were an absolute juggernaut in the 60-game season, and they were able to take down the Yankees. And say what you want about the Yankees not showing up, but on paper, they were a great team, and the Yankees shut them down, and you saw a lot of unsung heroes in the Rays series, and you saw them kind of just piece together their pitching staff, and analytically, it worked. And Kevin Cash has done a great job with that team, and if, going into the series, I, I would say fear the Astros because I think that people were kind of writing off the Astros. One, because people assume that they're not cheating anymore, and two, because they were two games under 500 and still snuck into the playoffs because of the eight-game extension. But now that the series is up two-one on the Rays uh, with the Rays, I really just think it's the you know like we said, the Yankees-Rays series was the two best teams in the American League. The Rays won, and it just seems like so far the Astros are. To an extent overmatched.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, as a fan, uh I personally did not want the Astros to win solely because fully <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> because of the of the cheating. So I'm like gunning for the Rays to win because they're I think I view them as the underdog because, you know, the Rays are kind of that team where it's like kind of all like underdog guys, not really big superstars on their roster, but they have a good system, they have a good coach, they know what they're doing. They as you mentioned they 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 probably or Max, or rather, mentioned is they they run the opener kind of style really well. They have great pitching, relief, and starters all the way around. So, I think you know, I think they're a tough team to beat. I really want the Rays to win. I think being up 2-0 is going to be tough for the Astros to come back from that kind of series deficit. So, in the, the day, I think the I think the Rays might have this one now. It's going to be tough for them to come back. I mean, honestly, hey. like, sorry, Max, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Max.
2: And I'm going to say hot take here, but I actually are kind of rooting for the Astros a little bit. Oh. Now I might, oh. I might be, I might be a little salty that the Rays beat the Yankees. And, you know, at this point, <laughs> Yankees is Rays is the equivalent to Yankees, Red Sox back in Oh three and Oh four. But I kind of just, I think even though I am by no means, con- uh, you know, condoning what the Astros did with the cheating and I hate them. Believe me. I wanted them to get beat every single game this year. But now that they're going up against the Rays, and the fact that they were able to take down the A's, I kind of was like, you know what? You know, F it. If they, if they, let's see if they actually... Because if they could win without the cheating, and let's assume that they're not cheating, that would really be an, an F you to everybody who back in spring training before COVID was mouthing them off, and I think it would just make a great storyline.
1: I think it's going to be tough for either of these teams to take down the ones in on the NL side. I think both Atlanta and the Dodgers are very, very strong.
0: Well, well, that's what makes the whole thing interesting, is that the Rays, and you brought it up just now, that they really are an underdog, regardless of the fact that, that they were were one of the better teams in the AL and the MLB as a whole. They're still a, a, a small market team. It doesn't matter how how you view them, whether or not they're a juggernaut or not. They're, they're still a team that, that only has a... 50, sixty million dollar uh, budget. It isn't like they're they're going anywhere with with man Choi playing first base. It isn't like you have a Freddie Freeman at first. But shifting over to the NL, it's the both both teams, whether it be the Braves uh, who have been pummeling my hometown New York Mets or the Dodgers, who it almost seems at this point inevitable that they should win the World Series, considering there is not one one weak spot on their team, but. Two things for you, Max. Could the Braves a give the give the Dodgers a hard time this series, and B if the Dodgers win it, are they there? Are they a shoo-in?
2: Well, I'll say, and Jack can attest to this. Today, in our sports broadcasting class, we had to do debates, and we had to do or commentary, and uh, two classmates of ours did a debate on the NLCS. And they were saying, you know, Dodgers in five, and our our professor was saying maybe six or seven. And I I am kind of around in the six game range where I think that the Atlanta lineup will be able to kind of mash their way to two or three wins. But it just seems like the Dodgers' year. I'm someone who does believe and do, and I think that the excuse me, I think that the Dodgers are due. It just seems like it's been so long they've been. Throwing out money nonstop, really even before seventeen when they made the playoffs, but even back in you know two thousand and fourteen or two thousand and fifteen, that team that the Mets beat. I mean, I thought back in two thousand and fifteen, high school Max was saying the Dodgers were going to win the National League that year, and it it just seems like they went to those two World Series, lost in both to two really good teams, got cheated out of one, and then last year, Clayton Kershaw lets up, up lets up those two home runs to the Nationals. And they kind of, after being the best team in baseball, so I think that this year they're angry. I think they have a chip on their shoulder, and they're just too good. What they only lost what seventeen games this season, or something like that. That's yeah, and seventeen and season. That's insane.
0: I, I mean, like it, it's wild considering this team has literally no no negative spots. What we've seen from the from the past, like you were saying, was Kershaw is a little shaky in the playoffs. Walker Buehler ha- had one bad game in the uh, in his first year in the playoffs, but. Like the offense is, I I mean I would say that they probably have probably the the best lineup. They may have some players that are maybe past their prime and a little overrated, I guess you could say, like Max Muncie. But the offense is insane. The the bullpen is absolutely phenomenal, like top down. I can't even name you half the guys in the bullpen that isn't named Kelly Jansen, and yet they still manage to like close the door every single game. Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly. (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) Don't (laughs) whine on Joe Kelly. Cut up, Bauer, but it's like the the Dodgers at this point. I feel I feel like it like it's almost a shoe win. I thought the only team that could possibly uh, fight them were, were the Rays and the Padres. They, they took very short order of the Padres, but it's I don't know. I I think it's going to be going to be the, uh, the the Dodgers' year. We'll just have to see. But Max, thank you so much for joining us. We got we got to cut it a little short. I appreciate your time, and I'll see you back home.
2: No problem. I'll see you guys. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you, Max. Take care, Max.
0: So, just to kind of wrap up, wrap up the show here, I want to just kind of talk to you for one second about the the the, the world now, the sports world, and this is something that I uh, was was interested in coming in, and, and I wanted to give Jack this uh, this debate. topic, but Eric, you will suffice here for for, for me today. All right. <laughs> so, Alex Smith, Alex Smith came back. We saw what happened uh, two years ago. He had a compound fracture in his leg, and. What what ended up uh, what ended up following was uh, sepsis, uh, a necrotizing flesh-eating disease in his leg. And but two years later, he took the field for the first time in two years after what seemed like an almost uncurable leg injury that ended up uh, plaguing him for two years. And he's back. And then, literally on the same field, three hours later, Dak Prescott suffers almost the same as his, almost the, almost the same injury. I feel like it's, it, it, it's a tale of two cities here, and it's a tale of two, two players that it shows what's happened between Joe Theismann getting his leg broken and not being able to play anymore, and now what Alex Smith was able to do and what Dak Prescott could potentially do, where people who watched Joe Theismann were like, oh my God, this is never gonna, he's never going to play again. But I want to get your take on the situation with Dak Prescott. What does it mean to the sports world? It seemed, it seemed to basically outtake every single topic Uh, In the sports realm, even more important than Rafael Rafael Nadal winning his twentieth major to be to be one of the greatest of all time, it almost seems like now Dak
1: Prescott once again is taking headlines. Yeah, I mean for the huge for the sports world as a whole, I think it. You know, I wish nothing but the best for Dak Prescott. He's been having a killer season. It sucks for anyone like that to go through that kind of injury, but nothing for the best for him. I hope he like you know has a good surgery and you know puts that time in to have a you know maybe once he's healthy and right to have a successful comeback story like Alex Smith did um but you know I think in terms of like you know for Prescott's side you know you look at a guy that was you know on his last year trying to get like big money from the Cowboys and mm-hmm. he was playing like he deserved it like the offense is tatered to him now like it's like all right we're gonna shift from instead of running it all the time with Ezekiel Elliott, we're going to shift to a throwing style with Prescott as the main guy. And it was working. Like, the offense was playing really, really well for the Cowboys. And to see him go down with that kind of injury is no fun. And, and, you know, we've seen Prescott kind of talk about, you know, uh, awareness for mental health and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I I am just feeling for him so much in that regard. I'm not sure how he's going (laughs) to react to this. I mean, we saw the initial reaction was just nothing but, like, sadness, tears, frustration as he was getting carded up to the or getting placed in the injury card. And that's the reaction that anyone would have, uh, you know, in that kind of atmosphere. And, you know, but everyone's like, you know, seemed to love Prescott. He's such a good guy. Like everyone on the team on the Cowboys and then Garrett, who's the off- Jason Garrett's offensive coordinator for the Giants. Mm-hmm. Now everyone's going to give him like a handshake and a hug and just kind of keep him in the right state of mind at that time. Uh, but, you know, I think once he gets through it, he'll, he'll have another great comeback story. Cause he seems like he's that kind of player. He's the, he's, never not started a game uh, as a quarterback in the NFL. So I think he's going to be working harder than ever to get back to the position and hopefully, uh, you know, some team will give him a chance down the line.
0: Well, I think that this, this is going to open up a whole other can of worms. And I think uh, one of the big things that I talked about before class today was, was should the NFL abolish the salary cap, well, the, the, sorry, the front, the, the franchise tag and be a more, more friendly in terms of, what the MLB does, are qualifying offers, where you can get a one-year deal worth eighteen million dollars, rather than a franchise tag, where where yeah he's making thirty-one million dollars this year, but it's almost like his his fight for for money has kind of now been thrown out the window, and this this calls into question should the NFL abolish the franchise tag? I don't know if they should or not. I think that I think they it should certainly change, but that's a topic for a different day. Uh, I just wanted to get your take on. What what's going to happen to to Dak Prescott? His surgery did go well. I want to give uh, my prayers out to his family. It's going to be a wild ride, and I'm really hoping that Alex Smith 2.0 doesn't occur from this. But mm-hmm. it's it's tough. It's sad. But hey, you know what? The sports world goes on. The Giants still lost in and that, and, that <laughs> and that's that's all that matters in my head. <laughs> for Stephen McAvoy <laughs> and Eric Kerr, thank you guys so much for watching the for listening while wow, watching the McEnaney Show. Uh, only an hour show today, it wasn't anything huge, a, a relatively slow news week. But, of course, as always, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Mac and Main. Check us out on our blog, the Mac and Main blog, with all of my crazy, ridiculous sports takes, and also Jack's, uh, not to mention. Follow us <laughs> on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube, just just Google the Mac and Main show and you will find us. But with that being said, first, Steve McAvoy and Eric Kerr. You are listening to the Mac and Main Show on 98.1 WQAQ. Expert on everything at 11 o'clock. Tune in. Check it out. We will see you then.
1: Thank you for listening to the Mac and Main Show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mac and Main. And like us on Facebook for updates about the show, news, and highlights around the world of sports. Make sure to listen to us Monday nights at 7 p.m. on 98.1 WQAQ or stream us live at WQAQ.com.